Good evening. It's good to be here. Good to see each and every one of you out this evening. Uh, my message tonight is going to be, as you see on the screen, called a temptation lesson. Um, and I don't know uh, who all in here has studied at all under George Fall. I know Dave has, Covey has, Devin is on his way there. Um, but if you have um, studied under George Fall at all, you will be familiar with this. Um, I think he makes a really good take here on the uh, temptation and fall of man. Um, and there's a lot of little uh, details in here that are pretty discreet. Um, they're pretty hard to catch. Um, but when you really dig in, into the text and really try to understand what's going on here, knowing the typical process of falling to temptation um, as humans, I think you'll see... Um, you know, what, what really happened here. Uh, because as we know, the, the, the Holy Spirit kind of walks you through uh, Scripture pretty quick in some spots. It's uh, really brief, which tells us it's not a human book because we want every little detail. So, um, so it's kind of funny that the temptation of fall of man, which changed uh, humanity forever, uh, is as brief as it is. Um, but we get the main point, right? Man fell um, in the garden, Man was kicked out of the garden, and from then on, God um, unfolded his plan of redemption to save mankind. And everything that happened after the fall of man um, was geared towards the fulfillment of God's plan to save mankind. Um, and that's important uh, to understand. So I'm going to be in a couple different spots. Um, they're not on the screen. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, and then Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, and I'm going to jump ahead to verse 24, just to kind of get the main idea of what we want to get here without having to read the entire account. So Genesis chapter 2, verses 15, uh, verse 15, The land the Lord took of the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then jumping ahead to chapter 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said that you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And then they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called to Adam and said, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. So he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat from? 
Then the man said, The woman you gave to me, she gave it to me and of the tree, and I ate. Then the man said, or then the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. After the Lord asked her, What what the, what is this that you have done? And skipping ahead there to verse twenty four. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherub at the east of the garden of Eden, and a flaming sword, which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, there was a lot to read there, a lot to take in, but I'm going to try to break it down a little bit for you. There's a lot in there. So verse 1 of chapter 3 states that the serpent, that is Satan, obviously, is cunning. So that means that he's devious, he's crafty, he's sly. He's very knowledgeable about exactly what our weaknesses are. Um, and Satan, being who he is and being in the condemned state he is, he's willing to use any means necessary to get us to fall um, and, and use everything that we struggle with against us. And the question is, how does Satan know these things? He, know, he knows our, our weaknesses. He knows where we fall. Uh, he knows where we, uh, where we struggle. Well, he knows these things by closely watching us. He studies our habits. He knows our schedule. He hears our conversations, kind of like the government. Um, he watches where we fall, right? He knows our weaknesses. And it's just like a, somebody, if they're breaking into a house, you don't just walk up to a random house and try to go inside and, and, and steal you know, whatever's in there, unless you're super desperate. But if you if if you ever watched documentaries or videos of of thieves, you know, talking about the process of going into a house, they'll oftentimes case a house or they'll case a neighborhood, and they're looking for certain features. There's bushes up against the house. There's dark areas where they can stand and hide. There's windows uh, that are low enough or or glass doors that you can just go right through. Um, and they'll watch houses for for weeks sometimes and know exactly when the family's there, when they're not there, you know what their habits are. And they find out what the weaknesses of the house is or in the family, and then they attack. And Satan does the same thing, does he not? Um, and and that, should, that should chill us to the bone. You know, he prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5, 8. You know, whenever you see a lion chasing after a, uh, an animal in the wild, he doesn't go after the, the strongest animal or the animal in the middle of the pack who's safe. He goes to the animals on the fringe or the animals that fall back or the injured animals, um, or the animals that decided to peel off on their own and get themselves in a vulnerable spot. And it's no different with us. And, and just the thought of being watched by Satan is, is, a, is a chilling thought, um, in my mind anyway. And it's all for the purpose of him getting the upper hand on his prey in order to drive us away from God, our ultimate salvation. So we must be sober and we must be vigilant. Because Satan isn't playing games, and we need to understand that. Um, he's playing for keeps. He's all business. And uh, when, like I said at the beginning, he's going he's gonna to use every means he has necessary to, to make us fall. And I believe 100% that Satan spent a lot of time probably watching Eve. I don't know the amount of time between creation and the time of the fall. Um, there's a lot of different uh, discussion on what that might have been. Once again, it's not important. But nonetheless, I think that Satan probably watched Eve for a while to find out, you know, how he could get her. And, um, and there maybe there was a series of events leading up to this. Maybe this isn't their first run and this is just the one that counted. I don't know. Um, I'm just speculating. But I bet he did know, I bet he did know her routine. 
right? And maybe, uh, maybe he could sense that she was curious. He had curious tendencies. Um, we, we know that uh, she was permitted to eat of every tree in the garden except this one. So what business did she have being by this tree in the first place? Yeah, she had everything at her disposal. Uh, she had liberty to do what she wanted with this one prohibition. So why was she even close to it? You know, whenever there's something we struggle with or there's a danger, why do we get so close to these dangers? I heard a story one time of a, um, a guy who was going to go travel to a, to a foreign country, and it was one of the countries with the steep, sheer cliffs with the roadways on the, you know, on the, on the hillside, and he was looking for a driver to drive him around the, um, this, the, the, the area there. So he asked a few different people. He said, how close can you drive uh, to the edge of the hill when we're going down the road? He goes, I can drive two feet from the edge. He goes, okay. So he asked the next guy. He goes, well, how close can you drive to the edge? He goes, I can get right up to it two inches away from the edge of the cliff. And he goes, oh, well, that's impressive. And he asked the third guy, how close can you get to the edge? He goes, I stay as far away from the edge as I can possibly stay. He goes, you're my guy, you're hired. And isn't that not the exact situation here? We get as close as we can. This is like a toddler, and they know they're not supposed to touch something. They get so close, they're like, I'm not sinning. I'm not, I'm not going against you. You know, and just, just to see how close they can get. And then they do touch it, and they get burned with the spoon. Uh, they get the wrath. And uh, it's, once again, there's nothing new under the sun. Things apply across the board. And also, I'd like to ask the question, where was Adam? In verse 6, it says she gave to her husband who was with her. But I kind of find it hard to believe um, that Adam had no say in this conversation. Um, you know, maybe he was close by. Maybe he heard some talking and he came over and the deed was already done. Um, but I don't think he was there in the moment that Satan was deceiving Eve. Because we read in 1 Timothy that Adam did not get deceived. It was Eve who was deceived. So that tells me that Eve had taken care of business already, and Adam came, realized what she had done, and Adam knew the consequences, but he consciously chose to eat of the fruit. He wasn't deceived. Um, and and, and that, that expressly says that. 1 Timothy 2.14 is where that's at. So that's important to note. Um, and I think, you know, and, and George, this is kind of what he said. He said, I think that Adam came and said, Eve, I can't live without you. I'll eat the fruit too. And what would have happened if he didn't eat the fruit? I have no idea. I don't know what would happen, but nonetheless, he did. Um, so, and then, so, seeing that Eve seemed to be the one who, who was moving towards the mysterious tree, um, that kind of uh, strikes a chord in our minds, too. You when know, we hear of something mysterious or suspicious or forbidden, we automatically have the tendency to want to move towards those things. It's kind of like the, uh, the, why not? What am I missing out on? What's going on there? Um, Derek Baker and I were talking a while back about, um, you know, he goes, if I just wanted to fill a pews up with people, he goes, I would go out in the middle of London, Kentucky, where they're at, he goes, I'd put a big billboard that says, do not go to Laurel Chapel Christian Church. He goes, the next week the whole building will be full of people because people will be like, oh, let's go there. So good or bad, when people hear about the church, I think they're still going to want to come and check it out. But we like to get close to mysterious things, as close as we can uh, without getting burnt. And I'd just like to look through some of these, um, these details here to see what we can learn about how to avoid falling into Satan's traps. So the first thing I'd like to look at 
long introduction there. What did Satan do in this situation? Okay, so the last part of verse 1, Satan says, Has God indeed said that you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So Satan starts out by calling the word of God into question. That's his first step in moving in his direction. Has God said? And we need to be careful. We need to guard our hearts. When we start hearing God's word beginning to be called into question for its truthfulness or being taken out of context, trying to say what it doesn't say. Um, and Satan also, he goes about here and secretly overstates God's prohibition to make it sound unfair. Has God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So in other words, he's saying, did God really say that? Is that the God you serve? What kind of loving God would put such limitations on the creation that he loves so much? Um, we might translate this by saying, your God is, your God is so strict. You know, you aren't allowed to do anything. He's, he's just uh, you know, limiting you and not letting you get to your full potential. So you see how Satan starts with the negative. You know, of all the liberty they had, he starts with the one prohibition that, that, that he wanted to hold against them, and, uh, in, in spite of all the freedom that they had. So when you put it, you think about it like this, it's like a parent who tells their kid, um, you know, you have freedom to do A, B, and C with the exception of D. What's the one thing the kid wants to complain about? The one thing that they can't do, right? You, know, you, you're, you, you don't let me do anything. I'm not allowed to do anything. You're, you're so strict. My friend's parents will let me do this, right? But well, what about all the other things that you get to do? We're going to go on vacation this year. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. But there's one thing you're going to complain about. But that's, that's kind of what's going on here. Okay, so the second, time, or second thing that Satan does, he flatly contradicts God's word. You will not surely die. So I think Satan kind of gets Eve off balance with the first series of, of questions here. Um, and then he kind of tosses in a bold statement here. And that kind of gives Eve the, uh, all the, the confidence that she needed uh, to, to sin. So for the first time ever, as far as we can see, Eve finds herself uh, questioning God and questioning his word. Um, and what she thought she knew. And I think that Eve was sincere uh, when she ate of the fruit. Um, I, I believe that Satan possibly had her at a point where she thought this is a good thing. God would want this for me. It's, it's kind of like the, um, the, the young um, prophet who God said, you know, as you go back, do not go and eat in any man's house. And the old prophet came out and he said, well, God came to me and told me you can come eat here. You know, and, and as they went on about their discussion, he he went in and ate, and then yeah, God had him killed. Um, but he, he wasn't trying to go against God. He was just, yeah, he, he was sincere in what he did, but he was sincerely wrong. And it's very possible that we could be sincerely wrong. There's a lot of people out there who are good, you know, Christian-like people, and they're sincere in what they do, maybe live more faithfully than some members, you know, in, in the Church of Christ, but they're wrong. And that's, that's, that's really what counts. Also, yeah, we get faced with these situations that we get ourselves into due to poor judgment. Um, before we know, we start to doubt God's word and some of the things that it plainly says. And this is where we get into trouble when we start listening to false doctrine, false teaching. Um, you know, there's a lot of good, you know, teachers out or good sounding teachers out there that we find ourselves listening to these denominational preachers, and, and they just sound so good. They sound so sincere. And, you know, I, I just can't imagine, like, the, the differences that we have versus their doctrine are so, you know, small that I can't see how it matters. And then what happens is we start to call into question basic Bible teachings, you know, like Acts 2.38 or 1 Peter 3.21, 
that are totally clear, they make perfectly good sense in their plain form, and we'll find ourselves contradicting God's word because we keep listening to these people who professionally guide us away from plain Bible, Bible teachings. But this is very easily fixed. Now, Eve didn't have this option as far as having God's word um, to, to fight Satan, but she had God's revelation. God told them what he was expected of them. But if you want to fight false teachers and you want to uh, get back to the basics and not be deceived, the best way to do that is to handle Scripture often and with good teachers and maybe good commentaries that we know are, are sound. And uh, I was attending this biblical citizenship class um, with an f- old friend of mine. And, you know, these guys that are on there, they're, they're awesome. They're talking about the uh, Constitution. Uh, they, I don't really agree with them a lot on a lot of their doctrinal stuff. But they're talking about the Constitution and how it's been twisted throughout time to mean things that it didn't originally mean. And they were talking about how important it is to get back to the original form of what the original writers intended, which is exactly what we're trying to do with Scripture. And, um, and they were talking about the importance of, of studying the Constitution so we can understand you know, what it means. And that applies to Scripture. And the one guy's mom is a bank teller. And she said, as I went through school, they... Over and over and over again, we obviously, they handled tons of money, tons of currency, over and over again. She goes, I never once was handed a counterfeit bill to see what it felt like. I never once saw what a counterfeit bill looked like, never felt what it felt like. And the reason is because they handled the real thing so much, and they were so familiar with the real thing, that as soon as a counterfeit bill would come across their hands, they would know the difference immediately. And, you know, we don't need to listen to denominational false teachers to understand where they're at and what they what you know what they believe, there are we need we can do that, but we, it needs to be very we need to be very careful and guard ourselves against that. But whenever you take scripture for what scripture says, you let the plain sense of scripture make make make, make good sense, and you take it for what it means and in, in, in its plainest forms. You know God's not trying to confuse us. You know if, if scripture means you know, looks like it means something, and it doesn't mean that, God would tell us. Take it for what it says whenever it makes good sense. So, and handle the real thing over and over again. And you'll know right away when there's a counterfeit. And as soon as you hear it, as soon as you see it, as soon as you feel it, you'll know the difference. And that's so important uh, to catch. The truth has a certain ring to it. So also, another situation, um, and this is where I've found myself struggle you know, throughout my life, especially in high school, is contradicting Scripture due to the influences uh, surrounding you. A lot of longtime friends that we have that we should have probably separated ourselves from um, a long time ago, or someone maybe who makes us uncomfortable in sharing our faith, um, we need to get away from those people. There's some people you just have to cut out of your life, uh, just for your own sake. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. So what does this have to do with contradicting God's word? It's oftentimes not so much the, the, the teachers that we hear that cause us to be deceived and contradict God's word. It's oftentimes the inner commotion in our own minds that causes us um, to, to rationalize our sin um, or to just try to keep the peace uh, with the people you're with and just kind of go along with what's being said. And I think that there's a direct correlation between who we're with and how we respond to Scripture. 
And that's why we need to be around good company so that we can hold true to those good morals and those good values. Now, does Satan know this? Does Satan know that we can struggle depending on who we're around? Absolutely, he does. Does Satan use this against us? Absolutely, he does. Should we be mindful and distance ourselves from certain people, understanding where we are weak? Absolutely. That's, uh, that's very obvious. That's very clear. But we continue to do not that. <laughs> we are professionals at rationalizing our own sin as it is. So why would we surround ourselves with people who help us to do it more? It doesn't make any sense. And we're never above, no matter who we are, no matter how much um, you know, uh, um, time we have in Scripture, we're never above the possibility of contradicting God's Word in our own minds. And Satan can use anything against us. He can attack us at just the right time when we're weak. And um, we need to be careful. Just like 1 Corinthians 10.12 says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. The third thing Satan does is he slanders the very motive of God. He says, God knows that in the day you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So this is where Satan really makes his attack on God and his goodness. Um, and he really makes Eve think that, I, th- I think he made Eve think that maybe this God who created me, who put me in this perfect paradise garden, who gave me freedom to do basically whatever I wanted with the exception of one thing, maybe this God doesn't have my best interest in mind. Maybe God's holding me back from my full potential. Has society not bought into that idea? Society tells us that we should have absolute control. We should be the Lord of our lives. We know what's best for us. And as a result, we can see the society that's been created because of that mindset. So if you're doubting God's motives for having us here when the world's out there having what they call fun. Here's just a few motives of God. Um, this is not an exhaustive list, but here's just a few things that I think do a pretty good job summing up what God wants for us. God gives us these laws so that we can have peace in God's unchanging nature and an ever-changing world, so that we can have joy and contentment in the essentials of life, and so that we can live forever. If you need more than that, I can't help you. That's as good as it gets. And there's more that you could probably add in there. But those three things, I think, generally sum up um, God's general plan for us. So if you think about it, God put Adam and Eve in the garden. And this world was perfectly suited to sustain human life. They, had, they did have work obligations, but they weren't, you know, they weren't restricted by time. And the um, atmosphere was perfectly suited for, for human life. So it was comfortable work. It was a joy. So they had a perfect environment. They weren't bound by time. And Satan still deceives Eve into thinking that God really was some oppressive, unloving God. So people who think that we can live this life without sinning, we would look around us. You can't look around a corner without seeing something that tempts you or cause, helps cause you to sin. And Satan or Adam and Eve were in a perfect paradise garden, and they still fell. So we're fools if we think that we're not going to. Satan's a master at his crafts. And by his tactics of doubt, denial, disbelief, and degradation of God and his word, he gets men to doubt God's word, his goodness, his love, his truthfulness, his wisdom, his judgment, and his authority. That's what Satan's trying to do um, to help us to fall. Okay, so that's what Satan did. Let's look at what Eve did. 
Eve doubted God's goodness. Now, this is subtle, and, um, and, and uh, you wouldn't typically catch this. And, um, and whether you take this or not, that's fine. But I think to get understanding of the text, I think this makes a lot of sense. Genesis 2.16 says, God said, of every tree you may freely eat. Eve said, we may eat of the trees in the garden. So God is the giver of every perfect gift. When you start to doubt that, you're bound to fall. You're bound to sin. And we need to make sure that we don't understate God's blessings and make them seem like they're less than perfect. Uh, just like Eve, when we let Satan affect our, our emotional state, we start focusing and relying uh, on the physical, uh, we're going to become discontent with the good things that God has given us uh, and, the, and the blessings from God. And the thing that God has created and given us are, are all the th- they're things that we need. And the things that we need must be content, or we need to must be content in those things. And as soon as we doubt that our necessities are enough, we fool ourselves and we open ourselves up to temptation. And we need to always make sure that we're quoting what God says accurately and in the right context so that we don't let it be used to say more or less than its intended purpose. Whenever Jesus was uh, tempted by Satan in the wilderness, how did Jesus fight Satan? Scripture. Jesus didn't use some miraculous power. He didn't make, do some magic trick. He didn't you know, snap and have angels come down and take Satan away. Jesus used Scripture. And I think we need to make sure that we keep that in mind. If the Son of God, who is the Word of God, used the Word to fight Satan, we need to do the same thing. We need to always be in Scripture. And he fought Satan by accurately referring to Scripture when Satan was trying to deceive him and use it improperly. So we can see how, you know, how clear it is and how big of a difference it makes. And we miss just a small detail and the effect that they can have on us. We know a small spark can start a whole forest fire. And I think that's kind of what happened here. Eve also, number two, overstated God's prohibition. I tried to emphasize this when I read it, um, but it may not have been caught. God said, you shall not eat of it. Eve said, you shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it. So Eve added to God's command by adding that she shouldn't touch it. Now, should Eve touch the fruit? No. We know that Eve shouldn't touch the fruit. It would be ridiculous to say she could. But I think that uh, that there seems to be a negative connotation here with her attitude towards God's prohibition. So, you know, once again, a parent who doesn't let their child go to a certain friend's house. You can go to friend A, B, or C's house, but not friend D. I don't trust their parents. They're not a good influence. You never let me do anything. You know, um, I can't have any fun. So it's almost as Eve is, Eve is saying, God said don't, don't uh, what do you say, don't eat of the fruit. Not only that, I can't even touch the fruit. So we should be careful that we don't get in the habit of looking at God's prohibitions as God trying to hinder us um, from doing what we want to do. Because we have liberty to do a lot of things in Christ. And uh, the many things that glorify God and bring us the ultimate joy and the ultimate fulfillment are the things that are good for us spiritually, physically, and mentally. So when we look at the people in the world who look like they're having fun, we need to not look at them to see what real joy looks like because those people in the world are not free at all. It, you know, God hasn't, hasn't unrolled his wrath on them yet, and things look good for them, but they are not free. The people of the world are... are, are uh, they're slave to their uh, passions. They're slave to their debts. They're slave to their 
to the various sins that they're, that they're attracted to. Um, so, you know, if, if, when God gives, say, prohibitions of, of us, uh, on us, we need to not think of these things as things that we don't get to do. Think of them as things that we don't have to do. Because if God isn't who he says he is, if God isn't who he says he was, if he, if he, doesn't, uh, if, if he doesn't have our best interest in mind, if we really aren't going to heaven after we die and after this world, this is it, we're of most all men to be pitied. Because I never bought into the idea that, well, if I'm a Christian and I die and I find that I was wrong, I haven't lost anything. I've lived a good life. The Christian life isn't always a good life, first of all. And other people say, well, if you're an atheist and you die and you find out Christianity was true, then you're going to hell for eternity. I don't live this life and I'm not a Christian just in case God's word is true. And just in case God is who he says he is. I live the Christian life because I know it's true based off of historical facts, historical documents to confirm word of God who has never, which has never been disproven. I live this life because I know without a shadow of a doubt that after I die, however I die, I know where I'm going. This is not a just-in-case thing that we do. This is a because-we-know thing. And if you're here just in case you die, and you, so you can go to heaven, just in case this is right, you're here for the wrong reason. And you should probably do some seeking and some, some learning because that's the wrong reason to be here. And the Christian life is not always easy. We're hindered from a lot of things the world is doing. We see the effects that it has on the world. We know it's wrong. But we're fools. You think the apostles said, well, just in case this is true, we're going to die on this cross upside down. We're going to get cut in half. We're going to get boiled in oil. You think Jesus was just some man who made up some religion? Because we know Jesus was real. Historic, historical facts tell us that. I don't think even atheists would deny that there was a man named Jesus who did great things. But if he was not the Son of God, he died for no reason. And he went through a lot of pain for a lie that he knew was a lie. It's an unreasonable thing to, to think. So don't think that this is just in case. This is because we know. And, and God's prohibitions are uh, to be good for us. They're to be a blessing to us. Next thing Eve did is uh, Eve doubted God's judgment. This is really interesting. God said, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Eve said, we are not to eat from the tree lest we die. So if you look, and it's, George said this, and I looked it up just to see. I didn't doubt him, but I just wanted to see for myself. In the Strong's Concordance, that word for lest is peradventure. So Eve said, uh, peradventure we die. So in other words, that, that word peradventure means perhaps. We might die. It's possible that we die. So if we doubt God's judgment, if we understate his penalty like Eve did, what it's going to do is that's going to embolden us to sin. And then we're going to think that the penalty really isn't that bad. You know, if a toddler gets away with something over and over again and they realize that the penalty isn't really that bad and it's worth going through the pain that they go through, they're going to keep doing it and they're going to, it's going to embolden them to do it more. If we doubt that if we sin against God or if we don't live this life as faithfully as we know how, you know, and if we're not in Christ, if we doubt that God's going to send us to hell, for going against him, we fool ourselves, and we're going to be emboldened to sin. If you continue in your sin, expecting God's grace to keep covering you, you're in great danger. 
Um, the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. So don't use God's grace that we should receive as a license to sin. It's not going to work. Because God takes it very personally when you use his grace, um, given to us by the shedding of his own son's blood, by the way, as a free pass to sin. Because when you do that, you're trampling the Son of God underfoot. And he does not take that lightly. If you read the Romans chapter 6, you can see um, what Paul had to say about how when we're in Christ, we are dead to sin and we are alive to Christ. We are not to use God's grace as a license to sin. We cannot understate the penalty of eternal hell. God is perfectly just. He's perfectly holy. And the righteousness of God and the wrath of God will catch every man, just like Roger Chambers said, It'll either catch you at the cross when you're baptized into Christ and you die with Christ in baptism, or it'll catch you at judgment when you die in your sin. And you don't want to catch God's wrath in your sin. You want to catch God's wrath at the cross in baptism. So don't think God's letting you slide uh, without punishment for your wrongdoing. You either repent or you perish. So we need to make sure that we don't doubt God's judgment. If you do, you'll begin to rationalize sin, and you'll deceive yourself and the others who don't know any better all the way down to ultimate destruction, and you will be held accountable by Almighty God. So in conclusion, the, if you, I'm sure you've all heard in John, uh, 1 John 2.16, it says, um, All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but of the world. This is... Number one cause of sin, probably either a combination of these three or either one of the three. Um, I think Covey mentioned this a few weeks ago. So let's compare that to Eve's situation. Eve saw, that was the lust of the eye. She ate, that was the lust of the flesh. And she believed that she would be as gods, the pride of life. So she fulfilled all three of them. The four steps of successful temptation is the outward object of attraction. That's the physical the inward commotion of the mind, that's the delusion, the increase and the triumph of desire, discontentment for what, you, uh, what God has already blessed you with, and the objective attained with sin. So there's a progression here that leads to sin, and uh, I, had, I had mentioned this earlier. So just go, and, and this is directly from, from uh, my summit work um, that George had in, in the book there. It says, when you find yourself listening to God's word being questioned or used improperly, his truthfulness denied, his motives slandered, and you feel yourself disparaging your privileges, that's making the privileges that God gave you seem like they don't matter, exaggerating your prohibitions and depreciating your penalty, and you begin to think in your mind how beautiful it is to your eye, how good it would be, or how wonderful it would be, and feel how, how good it would feel for your flesh, and how greatly admired you would be which leads you to begin doubting God's word, his goodness, his love, his truthfulness, his wisdom, his authority, and his judgment. Flee. You need to run away from those situations because if you don't, you end up like Eve. You'll sin. You'll bring others into your sin. You won't desire God's presence. You'll try to cover your sin. You'll lie. You'll blame others for your sin. You'll be ashamed of your sin. You'll suffer the consequences of your sin. And ultimately, you'll be separated from God. Satan's real. Satan's serious. He wants your soul and my soul to burn with him in hell's fire. And he is more than willing to use anything and everything against you to do it. And the only way to fight him is through the word of the one who crushed his head. And knowing how to rightly divide it. We need to be just as diligent or more diligent 
in God's work as Satan is in his because eternity hangs in the balance. Who are you going to follow? Maybe you don't know where you'd spend eternity. Maybe you're sitting here thinking that sounds like a, um, you know, it's, it's, this scares me, this, this, this worries me. I don't know if I'm going to be in hell's fire or if I'm going to be in heaven when I die. There's hope, <laughs> luckily. 1 John 5.13 says, These things I have written to you to, to those who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So we can know. There's a way to know. John 8.24, If you don't believe that I am He, you'll die in your sins. I guess we must believe. Luke 13.3 says, You either repent or you perish. That's black and white. Matthew 10.32, If you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. 2 Corinthians 5.21, This is a clear, concise a summary of the gospel. The gospel is what saves us. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So God chose to see Christ on the cross as our sin, so that when he looked at us, he would see his righteous son instead of our sinful self. That's only if you are in Christ. So God sees us as absolutely righteous when we're in Christ. So how do we get in to Christ? Galatians 3.27, For as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. When you put on a coat or you put on a jacket, you are in that jacket. When you put on Christ, you are in Christ. And that's the only place we can be in order to be saved. And according to the scripture, baptism is where that happens. Um, the cross is where Jesus Christ made it possible to be saved, and baptism is a picture of that happening at the cross. The death, burial, and the resurrection. When you've made that decision, uh, it's important to remember that you've made a commitment. And that commitment is not to be taken lightly. You must be faithful unto death. And then you'll receive the crown of life. If you want to get in on the gospel, if you want to get in on salvation, now is a good time to do that. If you need more answers, if you have questions, don't leave here without getting those answered because this is a heaven or hell situation. This is a life or death. And eternity hangs in the balance. And eternity is a long time.